Hello and welcome to the ARC Podcast. I'm Adam. And I'm Joy. On today's episode, we talk with author Pam Hillman. Pam is the author of three Tyndale books, Stealing Jake, Claiming Mariah, and her latest book, The Promise of Breeze Hill. When we talked with Pam, she shared about her writing process. Now, someone who's written so many books has to be able to engage her audience and write truly compelling stories. And towards the end of our podcast, she gives advice to aspiring writers. So make sure you stay tuned for more. Yep. And if you want to learn more about her, you can visit her website, pamhillman.com, or find her books at tindale.com. So Pam, getting things started here, uh, welcome to the show. We're very happy to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up becoming a writer? Yeah, sure. Um, the dream to become a writer started um, when I was in Mrs. Smith's first grade class. Uh, <laughs> from just about from the minute that I figured out that somebody somewhere had written the stories that Mrs. Smith read to us during story time, I knew that's what I wanted to do, to create stories and have them written down somewhere. And, you know, even at that young age, I was a daydreamer, making up stories in my head. Um, I more than likely, you know, I know little kids do that in playtime, but for some reason it was just an extra big thing with me. I really like to make up stories. And even at that young age, I was a daydreamer, um, but it, it took several years before I got up to curse with those daydreams in writing. And um, in my late 20s, I decided, as the saying goes, it was time to put up or shut up. <laughs> and I started working on my craft and reaching out to others who enjoyed writing. And I joined um, Romance Writers of America. There was a lady in my community that was a member. And so we connected. And then not long after that, American Christian Fiction Writers was formed and I joined that group and I'm still a member I've been a member about 17 years and so um, just started connecting with the community of writers and of course the internet and having computers and software and all of that to work with is so much better for us these days uh, than it was for the writers in years gone by where they were isolated and um, so all of that just helped me to stay in the game and in in the community of writers and learning my craft I'm, I'm thankful for that yeah. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it seems that having a community of writers is very helpful both to refine your own craft but then also to refine your ideas and always be on kind of the cutting edge of what people are reading these days what people want to hear what they're interested in and I'm curious why did you choose to write inspirational romance what what was something that drew you to that genre well I've always loved when I when I read as a, as a younger child teenager and getting on into that girly girly stage you know <laughs> I'm gonna back up just a little bit before I got to the girly stage <laughs> I enjoyed uh, Louis L'Amour and um, John Wayne Westerns, and um, that was so that kind of being a country girl raised in the in the South and on the farm. Uh, I always enjoyed horses and and farm animals, and 
So that part led me to enjoy that aspect of writing, the historicals or, or country life. And as I got older, even in Louis L'Amour books or John Wayne movies, there's always, you know, well, maybe not always a love interest, but a lot of times there's a love interest in some of the stories. And as I became a, a teenager, that aspect of stories kind of spoke to me. And so I like the idea of writing um, stories that involved, you know, a romance. And, and I'll have to say that, you know, all the, um, um, a lot of stories like that, and you know, Adam's gonna laugh because I'm gonna say, you know, the, the guy, the guy movies. <laughs> you know, there's always the woman, the woman always gets killed or she doesn't save the day, and I'm like, uh, uh-uh, uh, no, 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 no. The, the girl's got to, she's got to be in there. She's got to be getting her part. She's gonna, she's gonna be tough. I mean, I was a pretty much tomboy. I was a tomboy as a kid. And I mean, I raffled cabs and whatever I needed to do and help my daddy on the farm after my brothers moved out. I drove tractors, raked hay, bailed hay, and we, we rebuilt tractors, whatever we needed to do. So my girls always, they, they're part of the program to get, get the book done. You know, they're going to do their part. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to give, I think I wanted to give my heroines a, a part in the story. I wanted them to be able to, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not a, a feminist, but I do think they need to be all part of it and getting the story moving. So I guess that's part of it. I like I like a happy ending, and I like both parties to get a chance to 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 make everything work. <laughs> what was the first book that you published, and how did that come about? Okay, um, the first book I published was um, was Stealing Jake. And um, I believe it was in 2011, and Tyndale had had done a program that was called Digital, the Digital First Initiative, and this was right at the beginning of um, eBooks becoming popular, and you know everybody trying to figure out where they fit in, the publishers and the authors. So Tyndale decided uh, again; they decided to do this Digital First Initiative, and they sent out the word to uh, various agents in the Christian industry that they were looking for unpublished authors that had manuscripts ready to go. And uh, my agent, we were shopping, Stephen Jake at the time, and it was ready. And uh, he asked, what do you think? And I said, what do you mean, what do I think? It's Tyndale. Of course we, we want to submit. So, and uh, we, we submitted, and I was one of the authors chosen. I think, if I recall, there were four fiction projects picked for that and one nonfiction and uh it was a wonderful experience and uh we just kind of went from there um and Tyndale was actually my uh very the very first um Tyndale was my first publishing house that I really dreamed of becoming being published with uh as far back as 2000 and one, I believe it was 2001, I heard Karen Ball on National Public Radio. Um, she was talking about what Tyndale was looking for. And I was driving to work that morning. I pulled over on the side of the road and grabbed a shopping list or a, a receipt of some sort and a pen and started writing down everything that she uh, she told us on, on the radio. And uh, then 
I had just started. That was when I very first started my first novel that's under the bed now. <laughs> but um, uh, I sent in. She told. She said, if you think you have a story that we would be interested in, uh, send it in. Send it. So of course I had already read this one how-to book that said, you know, you start writing and you you query while you're writing and all this. And I sent her a query letter, and several months passed. And in the meantime, I connected with some other authors and figured out that I did have a long way to go. And but Karen Ball sent me a letter uh, asking to see more of what I had written. And, of course, that scared me silly because mm-hmm. I realized by then that I had a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. So, actually, I had had a, a request to submit to Tyndale over 10 years before I actually, you know, mm-hmm. broke through. So... So they were my first, actually, you know, was my very first uh, query that I sent out. Hmm. So uh, that was kind of an interesting, interesting time. And but then I started really working on the craft, and I said, and then it was I was ready for the digital first uh, initiative when Tyndale offered that. So mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. how I got started with Tyndale. Awesome. That's so neat. So it began with Stealing Jake, and then you moved to Claiming Mariah, which is another book about heroin. And then you most recently wrote yeah. The Promise of Reed's Hill. So tell us about that. What What is the premise of it? And what inspired you to write about this time period specifically? The Promise of Reed's Hill started with an idea to write about an indentured servant. And, you know, in the past, I had written books set in the mid-1800s, which were uh, billed as westerns. They were kind of the western genre. And, of course, as I started thinking about an indentured servant, I knew that that really wouldn't fit for mid-1800s because mostly indentured servants servants had fallen out of favor by then. Um, So I started looking at what's a good time period. I didn't really want to go back to the 1600s or the early 1700s. So, you know, even in the late 1700s, indentured servants were still still part of our culture in in the Americas. And I looked at it, and I thought about a lot of people think about the Virginias, uh, Pennsylvania, even um, North Carolina as being a place that you'd have a lot of indentured servants. But being from the South and from Mississippi, I wanted to see if I could set it in my home state. And Natchez and New Orleans are two of the oldest, um, um, they're, they're two of the oldest cities in in the new world but they were they were established in the, in the late 1600s and early 1700s and that really fit you know i like that idea and i like the idea of using the natchez trace which is also called the devil's backbone because it has it was such a lawless area people would go down the mississippi river um, to take their goods to ship them to put them uh, ship them out of natchez and new orleans to ship them overseas to to europe and then there really wasn't a way to get back up the Mississippi River, um, so they would go back up the Natchez Trace, uh, all the way up to um, up to Nashville. Actually, it's like a 400—I believe it's 446 miles. I think that's the right distance from across there. And you know, we think of highwaymen as being in Europe, London, you know, the the Victorian age, but. The highwaymen plied the Natchez Trace all during that time period. So, you know, I was moving into that 
setting up my story, setting it up in that time period in the late 1700s, which would incorporate the indentured servants. It would also uh, it also incorporated several different um, nationalities: uh, the French, the British, and the Spanish. Uh, all had a part in that area. They all held that territory at different times during the 18th century. And also, I needed to set it back far back, far enough back that the um, the paddle wheel, the uh, the steam the steamboat would wouldn't be in in play because they started in 1811, and that would have kind of the Natchez Trace fell out of favor as a way to travel back and forth. If you could afford it, you went up and down the river on the steamboats. So that kind of nailed my time period and just started one little thing at a time and just grew from there. And, you know, uh, it starts with one idea, which was basically an indentured servant and then grew from there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is, what are some I have of the things? more if you want it. Yeah. I do want to know some of the themes. <laughs> what are some of the big themes that readers might pick up on? The themes in the promise of freeze Hill. Um, Connor's self-worth, he has a, he has a low self-esteem because of, he's an indentured servant. He faced some situations in Ireland that makes him feel he's not worthy. So some of the things that come out after he becomes an indentured servant at Breeze Hill makes him more, his, his self-confidence grows. And there's, you know, Isabella's father helps with that he's kind of a you know he's a minor character but he he was very instrumental in in connor's um growth as a character and also connor is a very um he's he's a very passionate man who believes in family and wants to help and he's he's compassionate to others and as he gets to know the family here at Breeze Hill, even his desire to help his brothers and to bring his brothers to the to the Americas kind of takes a back seat to what's going on right in the here and now at Breeze Hill. So he doesn't give up that dream. That's always in the back of his head that he wants to bring his brothers over and reunite his family. But he also knows that he can't allow whatever's going on with the people at Breeze Hill, you know, for them to be destroyed by whatever's going on. And then as he begins to follow in love with um, with Isabella, all of that kind of is into play. And he just, he, he's such a protector. He can't let himself go on about his business, you know, and just let them do whatever happens to him happen. So it's all about his self, his self-worth, um, and growing, and then his also his nature as a man, his own nature of being a protector and and helping others regardless. And it's just it's really not. And even in the very end, there's some some dialogue that goes on that's kind of tongue in cheek, but it's very much about how he, you know, he really can't pass up an opportunity to to help someone or to save someone. Mm-hmm. So um, pretty much the entire book, he's doing that for a couple of characters and kind of do something in the second book where uh, it's, it's 
it's not real overt, but there's a character that he has to help again. <laughs> so that'll be kind of fun to see. Awesome. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm curious about your research process for the time period. I know you live in Mississippi and this takes place in Mississippi. Um, did you take any trips or was this stuff that you just knew from growing up um, about the state? No. Yeah, I did take a trip to Natchez and uh, visited and, and have been there more than once, but uh, I want to go back, of course. But a lot of a lot of the, the actual physical part, the geographical part is, you know, I, I don't have a problem with that. I kind of know the terrain. I know what to expect. I know what kind of animals and trees and foliage, you know, to kind of look for. But you know, trying to write in that time period um, would makes a difference, and you've kind of got to you got to think about what what kind of tools they would be using in in the work they were doing, um, how they would be doing things in the kitchens or or on the farm. And one thing that I I realized, you know, well, I'm just like in the westerns, most of the time, you know, they have a uh, wood stove of some sort um, that, but when you move back 80 years, or to, you know, 80 to 100 years, 1790s, um, most people were cooking just with the fireplaces. They didn't have the wood stoves. So it's just, I think if you are immersed in historical writing and reading, when you shift just a few years, you just have to be aware and some of it's just that gut feeling of, I don't think this would have been right for that time period. So a lot of times you just have to go and research certain little snippets. But overall, you know the story's coming together because people are the same. Regardless of what time period you're writing in, but it's the word choice what was invented or, or had not yet been invented for that time period that you have to watch. Mm -hmm. Other than that, your human nature mm -hmm. is going to be the same. Mm -hmm. um, the, the social mores and, kind of, and what's acceptable and not acceptable is a little, it, it, that shifts. So I did have to kind of, I did have to tone down my heroine for that time period, uh, what she was allowed to do and not allowed to do, even compared to my heroines that were in that, the middle of the 1800s. So, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of that's just um, just being aware and, and of what your what time period you're in, and and of course having a good editor that really mm -hmm. uh, picks up on a lot of things was was wonderful. Um, she, my editor was great, and mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I think Absolutely. she helped improve things a lot by saying, "Are you sure about this word?" <laughs> <laughs> That's great, Pam. It really sounds like you're so thought through, and that makes really rich characters with realistic scenes. That if someone was to go to where the story was, it would be like, oh my goodness, it's reflecting of what is truly here. So I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners, many of whom are interested in writing or who are aspiring writers, what advice would you have for them? 
sure, sure. Um, with aspiring writers and um, some of the common traps that I would say that an aspiring writer falls into is that you think you can only write when you feel like it or when the muse strikes. And, um, you know, if someone is serious about pursuing a writing career, then they need to work at it every day. Um, even if that just means jotting down a few notes about the story. I know that some people don't have a lot of time. If they're working a full-time job, they have children, but they need to be concentrating on just staying, keeping their head in the game, always thinking about their story a little bit. And if at all possible, they need to go ahead and get some stories written, try to get something polished pretty much, get a couple of things uh, in the second draft stage and then some things in a, a rough draft stage because when opportunity comes knocking, um, the more projects that they have, completed are in various stages of completion, the better off they're going to be. Um, you know, all three of my published novels with Tyndale were in various stages of completion when I signed my first contract. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's not to say, again, that I don't have some projects that I've tossed away and that I'm not mm -hmm. really trying to pursue, but the one, the ideas that kept nagging at me I kept going back to and, and polishing and working through those. And um, I think that's the key is is that newer writers need to work on their craft. They need to polish their craft. And they need to, as we spoke earlier about joining a community of writers, um, I think that's part of what, why I have, I stuck with writing until I became published is because I had friends and, and, and connections that encouraged me and kept me uh, in the in the industry and kept helped me to learn who was what editors were here or there, uh, what agents were looking, uh, which publishing houses were looking for certain projects, and um, and also one last piece of advice that I would give is. You know, it's so easy to become a published author these days uh, as far as being, uh, being self-published. And I've done some self-published projects. But I have to think about when Karen Ball sent me that query, that letter, that 11 years before I was published, I was not ready. And if if I had, you know, I'm no Tyndale quality would have been uh, that she would have had to let me down gently because she would have seen that I wasn't ready. But if I had had the opportunity at that far back to self-publish my project, and if I had done that, it would not have been to the quality it needed to be. I, I, I needed more. Um, I needed to work on my craft more. Mm -hmm. and And that's something that young and fresh and you're thinking everything that I write is golden <laughs> and this is just the way it came out of my head this got to be right and you get a little older and you and you learn and you realize that when it's had a couple of rounds of edits it's so much better and it's so much stronger and uh, be patient I think that would be it be patient and learn your craft and and just keep, but keep writing and keep staying, staying in the game. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I think that's perfect advice. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So Pam, if people wanted to learn more about you, see the books they've written, follow your blog, where should they go? They should go to www.pamhillman.com site. Um, I blog with the seekers at um, seekerville.blogspot.com. Uh, I blog there about once a month. And then I also blog with a, a, a group of authors that do, uh, it's called uh, the Heroes, Heroines, and History blog. That's kind of a fun one because we are very specifically uh, blogging about historical people, places, and things. And it, it's the www.hhhistory.com. I believe that's correct. So, but basically, if they will just go to my website, uh, they will find all of that, and they can find the, the links to to the different places that I would be blogging. Perfect. Awesome. And of course, Facebook, Twitter, all those places. Yes. Yeah. And and before you go, can you tease anything that you're currently working on? Well, let's see. Uh, I'm working on book number two of uh, the Natchez Trace novel series. We have a title, and the title is The Road to Magnolia Glen. And I just got a sneak peek of the cover yesterday, and it is awesome. So pretty. It's pretty. So they'll get to see that. Everybody should get to see that in probably two or three months, I guess, whenever everything is is finalized. Uh, Kind of in the final editing stages of of that. That's book number two. Then we'll have that book comes out. The Road to Magnolia Glen comes out in the summer of 2018, somewhere June, uh, May, June, something like that, 2018. And then I'm working on book three, getting started on it, uh, that would be the, the third book in that series. And the main characters are the, are the O'Shea brothers. So we're, we're everybody's kind of crazy about those Irish brothers. And so we're going <laughs> to. Let them all have their have their day in the sun. <laughs> That's wonderful, Pam. We're so excited to read the series. It's neat. I love when there's the beginning of a promise for all that's to come. You know, it keeps people really engaged and gets them to know the characters in a really deep way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It was a pleasure having you on. I have enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Y'all do such a good job. Thank I, you. I enjoy listening to the podcast. Oh, oh good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Pam. Have a great day. Thank you, and you too. Thank you. Bye. Bye.